You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. You know, if, if you and I uh, lived in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1850s, and they had Twitter back then, there would be one celebrity that we would probably all be following. And um, many of us don't even know the name today, but the name is Charles Blondin. We'd all follow him. He was a super athlete. He was a cultural hero. He became very, very wealthy. And uh, he was in political comics and all this. What he did was he was a tightrope walker. He was the first slackliner and the greatest of them. Uh, He was most famous for walking across a cable that spanned uh, over the uh, Niagara Falls in New York. And I mean, he didn't just walk on this thing. He would walk without the pole. He would walk with blindfold and burlap sack covering him. Uh, He would do somersaults and tricks. Uh, He took a table and a chair one time out there, leaned back and balanced the chair on the rope, leaned back, put his feet up on the table, and the chair fell out from underneath him, and he saved his life by grabbing, climbing back on. One time he was out there in the middle of the span, and uh, you know there's a, like a, the, a boat, a tourist boat down below the. It's like it's like the mist of the seas, or the seas of the mist, or something like that. He lowered down a rope and asked them to tie a bottle of wine onto it. He pulls the bottle up, drinks the bottle of wine, and then crosses the rest of the way. I mean that's skill and a stomach that I don't have. Um, he was probably most famous for taking a stove halfway across over the Niagara Falls heating it up and cooking an omelet on the stove right there and then eating breakfast on the wire before he went the rest of the way. Amazing guy. Now, one day, uh, because his fame had grown and he'd become an international celebrity, people were coming from far and wide, and there was a delegation from Great Britain, including the Duke of Newcastle, who was there on the Canadian side, and And they saw Charles Blondin come towards them on this cable, pushing a wheelbarrow filled with potatoes. And, uh, of course, the crowd erupted. It took about 20 minutes to get across, and they cheered. And uh, the Duke of Newcastle was very impressed with this feat, and he asked to speak with uh, the acrobat. And uh, so Blondin came up to him, and and Blondin said to him, Uh, Duke, do you believe that I could carry a man in this wheelbarrow and go back across? And the Duke said, I believe it. And then Blondin said, you could see it coming, well, would you be the man and get in the wheelbarrow? And you know the answer, of course not, you're out of your mind, right? But that's interesting, and it made me think that he said, I believe. And it makes me wonder, when we say I believe in anything, what does that mean? What does it mean to say I believe. Now, I think this is an important question for us, particularly as followers of Jesus Christ. Because if saying I believe doesn't change my life, if it doesn't make me more authentic, stronger, and better as a human being, then I don't know why I would bother to say I believe anyways. Right? So we're in this series about an apprentice because if you were with us last week you saw that Jesus calls his followers to be and to make disciples and another word for that a more contemporary expression of that is is make apprentices and so we're to be an apprentice an apprentice is somebody who gains the character and competence of the master through relationship and experience last week we said that each of us faces a capacity gap 
It's a gap between what we want to be able to do and what we can actually do, if we could actually do that. And when we're apprentices, we follow somebody who carries us across that capacity gap so that I believe actually translates into I can do. I can live with the abundance that Jesus promised me as his disciple, as his follower. So tonight, I would like to engage you in this question. How can we say, I believe, in such a way that it really matters? And the answer that I want to propose initially here is listening. And it's that simple, listening to God. Remember that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, Faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the word of Christ. And so really what we're, we're considering is how is it that we can hear the word of Christ in such a way that my faith can grow, can deepen, and can begin to be transformational. All right, well, we'll look at Psalm 81. So pull out your Bible if you brought one or open up the Pew Bible to page 471. You'll see Psalm 81 uh, right there. Now, this is a call to listen to God. I'm convinced that if this psalm had its own title, the title would be, God speaking to Israel saying, listen to me, exclamation point. That's the title of Psalm 81. Listen to me, exclamation point. Now, most scholars think that the occasion for this psalm, the, the, the reason it's written, is, it was written as a piece of liturgy for a Jewish celebration called Sukkot. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's one of the three great Israelite celebrations that required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Sukkot, also uh, it's translated the festival of booths or tabernacles, all of which means just tents. And those of us who are of Jewish uh, origin, uh, uh, we celebrate Sukkot. We oftentimes will build a little makeshift shelter in our yard to eat under, in some cases to even to sleep under. And by the way, festival of Sukkot begins this week. Uh, this Wednesday. So you may see this if you're attentive as you go around uh, Seattle. But what it celebrates is the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? Uh, as God rescued his people from Israel, he took them to Mount Sinai, and uh, there he spoke his covenant love into that uh, nation, now Mount Sinai. And, the, and then they, they, they uh, didn't listen, and so they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and it ends at a place called Meribah, the Rock of Meribah, which is where they were very thirsty and, and very angry and grumbling. But uh, Moses struck the rock and God provided water for them. So between Sinai and Meribah, there are these 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And this is what Israel is asked to remember in this great festival of Sukkot. And so it, look, if you look at just the first five verses, you can see actually it's kind of a call to worship. The, the liturgist is saying, sing aloud to God for strength, shout for joy, raise a song. This is probably sung actually. So you could picture uh, the Israelites singing Psalm 81 as they gather together. Uh, notice uh, the, uh, Sukkot begins with the sound of a, a horn or a shofar, verse 3, blow the tump, trumpet. It's the seventh month, seventh month of the year. Uh, when the moon is uh, new, There's, you can't see the moon. It lasts for a week, moving towards when the moon is full. And it's a statute. God requires that this celebration take place every year. Uh, Leviticus 23 tells them so. And, and so uh, they're saying, this is what we're celebrating. This is why we're here. And then all of a sudden, there's a surprise. Right in the middle of verse 5, do you notice the break that's there? Listen, uh, they're no longer are they singing to one another, but all of a sudden the, uh, the leaders, probably the chief liturgist, said this, 
I hear a voice I had not known. I hear a voice I had not known. I like the way the message translates that. It says, I hear this most gentle whisper from one I never guessed would speak to me. This is the voice of God breaking into the celebration. This is the one who is being worshipped, stepping in and speaking for himself among his people. And the text says, I hear this most gentle whisper from one I never guessed would speak to me. And then God speaks. And the rest of this psalm is the voice of the Lord spoken to his people. And he's admonishing them to listen, 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 listen. Be a people who listens to me. So I want to invite you to read this text with me, or just part of it. Let's read that paragraph there that starts at 5b and it goes down to verse 10. If you're able, would you stand with me and read God's word aloud? And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. I hear a voice I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I rescued you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Now, I want to share with you briefly a word about the creed and then three ways to heed or to listen. First, the creed, because because the Apostles' Creed is in the background of this Apprentice series. And if, if Charles Blondin and the Duke of Newcastle had been standing on the Canadian shores of the Niagara Falls and speaking in Latin, when Blondin asked the Duke if he believed Blondin could carry a man in the wheelbarrow, the Duke's answer would have been one word. He would have said, credo. That's the Latin word that simply means, I believe, which was his answer, right? He would say, credo, I Believe, And you can hear that that's where we get our English word creed. The Apostles' Creed begins with this is one word, credo, credo in deum. I believe in God. That's how it, it, it begins. And so it, it gives us an opportunity here to ask, well, what did that mean to them when they first wrote that creed? What, what did I believe mean to them? Now, first of all, who's them? The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. It was written in the second century, about 100 years later. And it was, um, it was written as the church tried to be faithful to the mandate that Jesus had given all his disciples. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew ends this way. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. And that's our theme for the year. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And do you notice how the, uh, the uh, Apostles' Creed is organized? I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Basically, the early church was training people to become disciples. It, very intentionally, so that when they were baptized, just as Jesus had commanded, they could, with knowledge and practice, uh, say, I believe. 
And so let me just suggest to you that there are at least two things that I believe meant in the second century. And I want to read a little bit of of ancient documents to you because it's kind of encouraging to me to know that we stand in this long tradition. There are two things. So the first, I believe, means this is I'm learning. And the second thing is I'm growing. I think it meant that to them. I'm learning and I'm growing. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm listening. Here's why I say I'm listening. Do you know that when the Apostle Creed began, it began as a, a, a response to a question, a good answer to a good question. It was dialogical, like a frequently asked question. Uh, you had been taught something. You had been listening to what you had been taught. And because you had been listening to God's revelation and truth, as it had been shared with you, you were able to give a good answer and say, I believe. So here's an example of this. In the 4th century, Augustine leaves us this text. He says, you were questioned, dost thou believe in God the Father Almighty? And you said, I believe. And we're immersed. That is, we're buried. Is baptism. Again you were asked, dost thou believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and his cross? And you said, I believe, credo. And we're immersed. A uh, second immersion. Thus you were buried along with Christ, for he who is buried along with Christ rises again with him. A third time you were asked, Dost thou believe also in the Holy Spirit? And you said, I believe. And a third time were immersed, so that your threefold confession wiped out the manifold failings of your earlier life. See, they were listening. That's why they could answer, I believe. The other thing is that they're, they're growing. And here's another text. This is from uh, the first century. So here's right at the time when the cement is still very wet on the Apostles' Creed. Justin Martyr leaves us these words. He says, all those who have been convinced and who believe that our instruction and message are true. In other words, all of those who have been listening as they prepare for their baptism. And promise that they are able to live according to them are admonished to pray and with fasting to beseech God for pardon for their past sins and we pray and pray and fast with them. They, are, they have this confidence now because of their instruction and their intention that they are able to live according to what they have heard. doesn't mean their lives will be without sin but it means that they know what to do with their sin in relationship to Jesus Christ. So they're listening and they're growing. This, I would suggest, leads us to believe that when they said, I believe, they were offering a robust credo. I believe meant I am closing the capacity gap as I follow Jesus Christ. I'm his apprentice. So what I'd like to do tonight now as I move away from the creed and talk about three ways to heed and to listen. I want to talk to you about your faith. So I recognize that we're all in different places here, aren't we? At UPC, and I love that about UPC. Some of us have really almost no faith at all. And, uh, and then some of us have been walking with Jesus Christ for 60 years and, and everything in between. And so you and I are in process somewhere, you know, on the spectrum. And so what I'd like to do is, is talk about three different kinds of faith um, almost from a developmental perspective, so that you can identify where you are and what your growing edge might be uh, along this spectrum. Because there are three different understandings of faith, and uh, I'm going to use three Latin words to describe them. You don't need to learn the Latin, but I find it helpful in, in differentiating these different ways of saying, I believe. And the three Latin words are this, ascensus, ascensus, fiducia, or fiducia, and fidelitas. Now, uh, first of all, ascensus. This is belief in its most basic form. And, and when I have ascensus and say, I believe, what I mean is, I agree. 
The Latin word assensus can be translated approval, assent. We can hear that one, right? Assent or agreement. And this is very important. It means I agree. And when we have a census, we have a census because we have heard, we've been listening to God, and we hear his claims. Notice that that's where the psalmist begins as God speaks to this festival. Verses 6 through 7, there's a stanza there that's complete. And in the stanza, the Lord reviews the claims of God. For the Israelite believer, he rehearses their history. He says, I relieved your shoulder from your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. That's the toil of slavery in Egypt. And then he says, In distress, you called, verse 7, and I rescued you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. Now, what's that? That's Sinai, the secret place of thunder. That's Mount Sinai when God, the voice of God, sounded like thunder to Israel. And then I tested you at the waters of Meribah. That's the rock. Where out of an impossible situation, God gave life-giving water. So these are the claims of the Israelite faith, the claims of God at that stage of revelation. And this is the place where we would begin also with a census. And what are the claims that God presents to us? Well, it's the claims of the gospel. That there's a God who exists, that this God loves you deeply, that there's a chasm or a gap between you and God that the Bible calls sin, but that Jesus spans that gap through his cross, dies on that cross, and he's risen again from the dead to give us everlasting life. And that you and I find our deepest fulfillment in relationship with God. These are the great claims uh, of God. Now, the beginning of faith is to hear these claims and to understand them and, and to ultimately say, you know, I agree. This is what got the Duke of Newcastle to New York in the first place, right? He heard that there was this great chasm, uh, there was a waterfall, that flew, and there was a rope, and there was a man who, who could walk across. He heard these claims, and he said, I, I give my assent to that idea. I'm going to buy a steamer ticket and get on a boat and, and cross the Atlantic and, and, and witness this spectacle. Uh, so that's the Duke. When the Duke says, I believe, credo, that's what he means. Now, let me just say a word about our agreement. Sometimes people ask me, uh, friends of mine, who say, well, George, that's fine. Do you believe that? But I think for me to believe that, I would need some kind of proof. And let's think about proof for just a moment. There's a philosopher at Notre Dame University named Alvin Plantinga. I think he's one of the greatest philosophers alive, and he's a Christian. And Alvin Plantinga has written a book called Warranted Christian Belief. And in it, he argues that Christian faith has warrant even though you don't need proof for it. Here's the way he says it. Imagine uh, that you're a woman and you have read uh, Nietzsche and Freud and Marx. And you've read them thoughtfully and you've considered their objections to Christian faith. And you've seen that they are substantial on the one hand. On the other hand, even though you know that there are respectable arguments for the existence of God, you have a sense that your faith doesn't rest on any one particular argument. And if you were really challenged about it, you'd have to admit that your faith really is based more on your own experience. You have what Planning calls a rich inner spiritual life. And there are moments in your life when you just get this glimpse of divine beauty and the loveliness of the Lord. And it overwhelms your soul with a sense of peace. And on the basis of that, you're inclined to say, I don't exactly know how it is, but I just believe. I just know God is there and that God loves me. Now, Planica says, you have warrant to think that way. Because let's just assume that the great truths, the great claims of God were actually true for a minute. Just assume that. 
I mean, if those things were true, wouldn't it stand to reason that God would want to communicate with those whom he loves? That God would make human beings in such a way that he could get through to their souls on the deepest possible level. That he could overcome the, the, the noise of the accidents of culture and personal bias. To, to, to grab a hold of us so that we would, could be able to say, I, I believe, even though I don't know how. It's possible, isn't it? And think about proof. Is proof really something that we live by all the time in every other area of our lives? I mean, many of the great things that we believe you couldn't really be proven, could they? You can't really prove that somebody loves you. You can't really prove that justice is better than tyranny, can you? And yet we just know those things are true. So that Blaise Pascal had said, you know, if I'm going to be wrong about something, I'd rather be wrong believing that the great claims of God are true than be wrong about believing they're not true, only to to find out someday that they are. So the point is that we all live by faith. We give our assent to some claim or another, and we live by it whether we realize it or not. A census. When I believe means I agree. An apprentice, then I'm saying, listens for the claims of God. And that's the place to begin. All right, let me move to the second stage of faith and the second word, which is fiducia or fiducia. Fiducia also is belief. But here, when I say I believe, what I mean is I trust. I trust. Because the word fiducia can be translated reliance, trust, or confidence. And we gain fiducia by listening to God, but in this way. Not just listening for the claims of God, but listening for the promises of God. In the context of everyday life. In our experience. And so God begs Israel to listen in this next stanza. Verses 8 through 10. You see how it continues. Here he acknowledges that there are other voices to whom you may listen. There are foreign gods. But he says, please, listen to me. Open your mouth. Look at that verse 10 at the end there. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. It's a picture like a... um, like a, a group of chicks who are sitting in the nest, starving for food. And their mother, the robin, comes and she says, open your mouth wide. And if you've ever seen that, they do. And the mother just putting nourishment in, in, in. What God is saying is, I know there are a lot of people who are making you promises, but whom do you trust? Trust me. I will satisfy your deepest yearnings. You can, you can have confidence in me to meet your most fundamental needs. You can rely on me. You can see how fiducia now is the kind of belief that really begins to affect a person's lifestyle and the choices that they make. You see, this is what the duke did not have. When the duke said, I believe, he meant that's fine for other people, but it's not fine for anything that I value. Happy to watch the potatoes go across in the wheelbarrow, but nothing important to me should be placed in the wheelbarrow. You know, and I'm afraid a lot of us are, are that way with Jesus. We say, Jesus, I believe in you, but I would never put my reputation in your hands, or my money in your hands, or my career, or my marriage, or my safety in your hands. Now, um, why? Commonly, people give two reasons uh, to me. The first is that people say, well, I could just never take that risk. Well, I want to ask you, though, are, are you listening to God's promises? Is it really a risk? Do you see the promises he's made to you? Think for just a minute about sex. Some of you don't need my encouragement to think for a minute about sex. Uh, but, but, but think about sex. Now, um, if you're not married, God basically commands you to keep it zipped up. 
And you go, oh my gosh, please, why, why, why? You know, I'm a sexual being. I have deep sexual needs. And they need to be expressed somehow. And even though I'm not married, there's got to be some kind of an outlet for that. And the answer to that question is, if you ask me, is I don't know. I don't know why God restricts marriage, uh, sex to the covenant of marriage. But the Bible's really clear that he does. But what I do know is that God makes a promise to you. He makes a promise to you that affects your sexual life. Uh, the world will tell you that the greatest intimacy you can experience is sexual intimacy. The Bible, though, tells you that your greatest sex organ is not your body, it's your soul. And that deepest intimacy doesn't come at the level of your skin and neural endings. No, it comes deep in your spirit. And God says, I can give you intimacy with me that is deeper than any sexual experience you have. But we say, well, that's an interesting promise. The question is, do I believe it? And would I be willing to trust and, 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 and accept that promise in my life? But if I do, then I'm, 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 I'm preparing myself to receive this intimacy, and I'm able to hold on to my sexuality in a very different way. In fact, because I've put it in the wheelbarrow and said, Jesus, I trust you with this. It's very precious to me, but I trust you with it because you've promised the other objection that I frequently hear is people say, well, I, I don't have enough faith. I, you know, and sometimes it comes, and you, you, maybe you've heard this, people say, oh, I wish I could believe like you, but I, you know, I'm just a scientific person or something like that, or I, just, I don't have that kind of faith. Now, let me, I want to challenge that, and I do challenge that. I say, you know, I really don't think the difference between you and me is, is a, a difference of quantity of faith. I think the difference is where we choose to place our faith. See, you have confidence in one thing. I'm trying to have confidence in another thing, but we both have faith. And, it, and the worth of faith is never really measured by its quantity, is it? Let's, let's go to Green Lake for a minute and just imagine it's winter and that Green Lake is frozen over and we're walking around the lake and you say to me, George, I have very little faith uh, in, uh, that we can walk on the ice. There's very, very little faith. And there are, but, it, but it turns out it's been a cold winter and there are four feet of, of ice. Uh, the ice is four feet thick. What happens when you step onto the ice? Nothing. It bears your weight, right? Now suppose that I say uh, to you, uh, well, I'm a pastor, and I have great faith, great, great, great faith, but the uh, ice happens to only be a quarter of an inch uh, where I'm planning on. And I said, but I have so much faith, I'm just going to walk right under the ice. What happens? I get wet. You see, because the worth of the faith has nothing to do with the quantity or the person who has it. It has everything to do with the object. It's not the subject, it's the object, and whether it's worthy of our faith. That's why I'm with Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, when he says faith means trust, and trust is the act in which a man may rely on the faithfulness of another, that his promise holds. And what interests me is not myself with my faith, but he in whom I believe. And, what, what, and when we listen to God in the context of our life, we begin to dis- discover he is a worthy object. And his promises are true. He keeps his promise. He's faithful. So an apprentice listens for the promises of God. Let me move on then from ascensus and fiducia to the final word for faith, and that's fidelitas. This also means belief, but when I believe in this particular way and I say I believe, what I mean is I am yours. Fidelitas. I'm yours. The word fidelitas means faithfulness or fidelity. And if we want to have fidelitas in our lives, then what we have to do is listen, but listen for the grace. Listen for the grace. Because 
in this next and final stanza, what the Lord does for Israel is quite remarkable. And he doesn't say things about himself. And he doesn't make new promises. He reveals himself directly. And he does so with an image. He says, I will feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. Verse 16, I will satisfy you. Now, this image of the rock is remarkable because they remember the rock of Meribah, which they were in an impossible situation. Their needs were desperate. They had no solution for them. And there's this rock. And who would have thought the rock could mean anything and that water comes out of the rock? But now the Lord is saying, not just water, but honey from the rock. The honey was sometimes in cliffs and rock faces. And in the New Testament, the writers begin to associate this rock language with a pre-incarnate presence of Jesus himself following his people through the wilderness. I will be with you, and when it seems absolutely impossible, I will feed you with the finest of wheat and honey out of a rock. Now that's grace. And, and, and it's interesting that that comes here at the culmination of a section that's mostly about judgment. Do you notice verses 11 and 12? He says, but my people do not listen. And because they don't listen, bad things happen. And I just love the fact that part of Israel's story is that they don't listen. That's part of the story. God wants them to rehearse this when they gather together for for Sukkot. You're not a listening people. You didn't listen in the past. You're not going to listen to the future. You're not listening to me right now. But you know what? I'm going to keep speaking to you. And I'm going to bring honey out of the rock. And this is God's grace. In, in the impossible contradictions of, of life, those who have this kind of faith know that they are secure, not because of how tightly they hold on to God, but because of how tightly God holds on to them, will feed them and sustain them with loyal, personal love. I know I'm not listening, but you're still speaking. I know I'm rebellious, but you call me forgiven. I know I'm in the wilderness of my life, but you have honey from the rock. So Oswald Chamber, the author of My Outmost for His Highest, writes, Discipleship means, get this, personal, passionate devotion to a person. Our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a difference between devotion to a person and devotion to principles or to a cause. Our Lord never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed personal devotion to himself. No man on earth has this passionate love to the Lord Jesus unless the Holy Ghost has imparted it to him. We may admire him, we may respect him and reverence him, but we cannot love him. The only lover of the Lord Jesus is the Holy Ghost, and he sheds abroad the very love of God in our hearts. Whenever the Holy Ghost sees a chance of glorifying Jesus, he will take your heart, your nerves, your whole personality, and simply make you blaze and glow with devotion to Jesus Christ. This is a response to his grace. So finally, I want you to see an apprentice listens for the grace of God in her life. Listen to me. Listen to me. If we will do that this week, we will have to do it intentionally. We will have to find a time and place in a busy, noisy world to be quiet before the Lord and to let him speak. We won't know who we are because we've listened to the pages of the Wall Street Journal, the Huffington Post, or the feed on Facebook. Jesus has a totally different vision of your life. It's a new life and a new way to live. It calls us in the adventure of sharing hope in Jesus. And so we need to listen. We need to hear enough to be able to respond to Jesus and then for say, I believe, as the, robust, uh, mo- the most robust credo possible. Do we hear enough content to be able to say, I agree? Do we hear enough of his promise in the context of our challenge to say, you know, I trust 
And do we face the contradictions of life with his grace enough to be able to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the one who's given himself to us? You know, I understand that nobody finally got into that wheelbarrow with uh, Mr. Blondin. Nobody was willing to do it. But one day, and I think it was in 1859, there was somebody who got on his back, his manager, whose name was Harry Colcord. His manager had seen him walk that wire hundreds of times. More than that, he knew his heart, and he knew he could trust Charles Blondin. So, again, on the misty shores of the Niagara Falls, with the roar of the falls, <laughs> drowning out all other noise, Harry Colcon uh, listened to Blondin like you have never listened to anyone in your life. Because Blondin is going to give him his final instruction before he steps on the wire. I think that would concentrate uh, your focus, wouldn't it? Here's what Charles Blondin says to Harry. Listen to this. Look up. Harry, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. The stakes are high. But you know what? They didn't. They lived long lives and they died in their beds. Jesus calls us to oneness with him. That he might carry us across that chasm to the other side. And to so live that we might live with him. Filled with him uh, in our day today. That was the day that uh, Blondin made a believer out of Colcord. And I pray that this is the day that Jesus Christ will make a believer out of me and out of you. Let's ask him to in prayer. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thank you for joining your life to our life in the humanity of Jesus Christ. Thank you for overcoming our brokenness and weakness and lostness. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to bind us to Christ and draw us into your everlasting love. We do pray that you would help us. We believe, but help our unbelief. And then lead us out into this world that we might share the good news and the claims of God with those who likewise need to join us in you. We pray it in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.